Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there, Mark Kenny here with another jam-packed episode of Democracy Sausage coming to you from the Australian National University's policyforum.net, the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Well, the season has changed and so too the mood as Australia carefully positions for a resumption of normal service. Not so in the country's two closest strategic and cultural allies, the UK and the US, where the corona response has been chaotic, amateurish and deadly. It's amazing to think that the same virus threatened all of us and yet the governments in these two democracies have weakened their societies, trashed their own political authority and failed their populations in the most fundamental of ways. Conservative governments love telling us that a government's primary, most basic responsibility is the safety of its citizens, and they use this moral platform to justify the most colossal defence spending and ever-expanding web of security and surveillance powers. Yet even when warned in advance of the material threat of COVID-19, they hesitated, denied, fumbled and failed. Nearing 110,000 official deaths, the US accounts for close to a third of total global fatalities. In the UK, where bizarrely deaths in aged care care homes are not counted, the COVID toll is nearing 39,000, which is actually worse than America on a per capita basis. Clearly, Australia has done it so much better, for which credit must go to our leaders, health experts and medical workers, and the general public. But of course, Corona is not the only game in town, and there are plenty of other things to discuss. Joining me to do just that is my trusty pod league, Dr. Maria Taflaga. Hi, Maria. What do you think of that word? Can I make you into a pod league? A pod league? What's a pod league? Hello, everyone. That's a that's a pod colleague. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. No worries. I'm, I'm thinking that I can, you know, invent this word. Everyone else is into inventing words on yeah, the internet, yeah, so I yeah. figured I'd give this a crack and see how it goes. I don't know. I thought you it's were sort of talking elegant, about though. the League of Nations or something, and I was thinking, like, <laughs> do we have to have more meetings now? <laughs> Nothing so lofty, at least not yet. <laughs> Also with us is ANU's Professor Frank Bongiorno, historian, author, commentator and all-round public intellectual. Welcome back, Frank. Oh, thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. And it's a big welcome to one of journalism's true heavyweights, Hugh Remington, who, apart from being a 10-network news anchor, has worked for the ABC and is a foreign correspondent for CNN and others, and who hosts the politics podcast, The Professor and the Hack. Great to have you with us, Hugh. Nice to be with you, Mark. Maria, I'd like to get to several things this week, such as the Coalition's pitiable robo-debt back down and the death of COAG, the Palace Letters and a few other things, which now, when I come to think about it, are all positive stories in their own way. 
But I'd like to get your thoughts, or all of all of your thoughts, really, on the situation in the US as uh, as we go to air. It's um, what is it, five or six nights now of unrest. There are the national guards in twenty five uh, cities. It's um, curfews everywhere. Um, it it seems like that society is is under an enormous strain now. Uh, it's ostensibly. Uh, started by the death of uh, George, the murder of George Lloyd, uh, an African American who was uh, being arrested and you know had had a knee in the back of his neck for a sustained period. But there seems to be many grievances being aired uh, now, and uh, it really is a situation that looks like it's completely out of control. Well, yes, I mean, I think the thing that is most alarming about what is going on in the U.S. is that. I feel like we've already kind of used all of our superlatives uh, for describing the ongoing crisis in the United States. And, you know, to add to the, you know, 41 million people who are unemployed, uh, deaths now over 100,000 and with no end in sight. And now, uh, you know, major cities on fire with the president who is effectively abdicating power. There is a sort of whiff of, uh, you know, Nero to uh, the sort of scenes going on in the United States. And I believe the president will be golfing uh, rather than seeking to address citizens' concerns about, you know, well-documented and long-running problems with the way a militarized police force enforces the law in the United States and disproportionately against African Americans. In circumstances, or rather uh, in numbers of uh, deaths in custody that are parallel our own problems here in Australia with Indigenous deaths in custody and higher rates of incarceration and bothering by police. Yes, it's really a staggering situation. Frank, uh, what's your reading of it? It it does feel like um, a whole lot of things are being aired at once and that uh, a a community that is under a lot of strain as a result of COVID, but as a a result of a lot of other long-standing issues, widespread poverty and disenfranchisement, the specifics of police action and many other grievances are all being all coming out at once. Yeah, and I suppose that's been one of the readings of the COVID story in the US up till now, hasn't it? That in a sense, uh, it, it brings together a number of, of um, weaknesses in the system, a number of problems that have been identified uh, in US life, the lack of a, a decent healthcare system for large numbers of people, uh, a president who basically, as Maria said, seems to have gone out to lunch and is basically pretty feral, um, massive racial inequalities, massive, massive social inequalities, lack of job security. So all of those things that have kind of been a part of the COVID story up to now um, have, have really exploded. I think people have perhaps underestimated up to this point also the degree of resentment of people who are basically about to be thrown back into often low-paying jobs, which is really what the policy of the president seems to be at the moment, and obviously a number of states are heading in that direction too, which is going to be life-threatening for many of the people we're talking about here. Um, the, the, the impact of COVID um, on African Americans has been very disproportionate, and it's hard, I think, to avoid the conclusion that's one of the things that's going on here in these riots. You? Well, uh, there's so much to unpack, really, about what we're seeing in the United States, and, and it's interesting to have Frank there because I think, in some ways, journalism 
stops at a certain point and you need a, an historian's perspective on what we're seeing because I think we're witnessing something as profound as uh, as 9-11, as profound as other big shifts that uh, come on every generation or so. And they're coming in combination, really, the pandemic for one thing. Uh, but so that's only obviously one of the elements that's feeding into what we're seeing on the ground. But, but it is the utter... Uh, lack of leadership that we're seeing. This is the this is the random new factor, uh, because whatever else we've seen in the past, we've seen incompetent presidents. We, we can go back to Herbert Hoover, was ill equipped to deal with the Great Depression and was quickly turfed out of office. And FDR came in, um, but whatever he was doing, no one could deny that he was trying. Um, he, he might have been ineffective, uh, but presidents that have come since George W. Bush, etc., never doubted that they were presidents seeking to use presidential power to uh, to equip their nation to deal with whatever the challenge is, f- for better or worse. With Trump, you see something completely new. We've never seen it before. And that is, um, you know, the, the reference he's abdicating power. He's abdicating responsibility. He's back on Twitter again. And uh, in the last few hours, he's turning his guns on the media. Now, bear in mind, of course, the media, uh, for all its flaws, reports what is going on. And it's the classic old tale of shoot the messenger. If you don't like what's going on, uh, the the easiest, most cowardly, most immature, most childish way uh, to deal with that is to say, well, it's not going on. Uh, the messenger is telling you falsehoods. And the messenger is plainly not telling falsehoods, you know, taken as a whole, the media in this. And yet here's a tweet. I'm going to quote it. The lamestream media is doing everything within their power to foment hatred and anarchy. As long as everybody understands what they are doing, that they are, capital letters, fake news and truly bad people with a sick agenda, we can easily work through them to greatness. A few hours after that, in full capitals, uh, fake news, nothing more, fake news. Now, these have been liked on Twitter by hundreds of thousands of people. So we're getting perhaps too much of the Second Amendment in the United States, the right to bear arms, not enough of the First Amendment, the right to free speech and for the acknowledgement of what's going on in a free press. We're seeing increasingly cases where in, in areas where there can be no argument that journalists might be mistaken for anything other than journalists, where journalists and, and crews from mainstream media are identifying themselves, are being compliant, polite in their demeanor and in their behavior towards uh, police and other armed units, then nevertheless either getting arrested or in the case of a former colleague of mine, Ali Velchi, um, uh, going in the middle of a police thing, they're using non-lethal rounds, it must be said, but going up and saying, we are the media uh, and being told, we don't care, and the police lighting up and hitting uh, his crew with non-lethal lethal project, uh, projectiles. This is something which requires leadership from the top, and it is utterly absent. In fact, far from being absent, what you've got is this president sitting in the mob, yelling epithets and abuse at a group in society that have got constitutional, constitutionally protected rights and responsibilities. And he's also tweeted um, favorably a, a character with the name of Bucks, Buck Sexton, who's a right-wing um, 
commentator, sometimes one of these names are made up, but Buck Sexton had tweeted out, this isn't going to stop until the good guys are willing to use, get this, this isn't going to stop until the good guys are willing to use overwhelming force against the bad guys. <sighs> and overwhelming force can only be interpreted in one way, really. And good guys are being, and particularly bad guys, are being neatly spelled out by the president. This yes, is not that's right. going to and he's well. re- And he's retweeted that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is astonishing. It, it's pretty obvious that Trump views this whole political uh, landscape in front of him as, as effectively two Americas. He has no interest in the idea of a unified society of national leadership. What he has an interest in is firing up his base and his side and barracking for one side in with sufficient fervor and 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 vim to uh, to effectively divide the country but his side's you know bigger and that's how he gets reelected well it's not even clear that his side is actually bigger i mean he did not actually win the the popular vote and i think what's been really disturbing is the way he has like withdrawn funding from from states or jurisdictions that have seek to improve access to voting, you know, via absentee voting, postal voting. Um, the way he is already kind of uh, laying the the groundwork for uh, contesting the results of the election outcome. I mean, you know, like the only place places where we see countries or you know parties contest the results of election outcomes are, you know, new democracies on the, you know. Uh, we don't tend to see this kind of behaviour in well-established democratic countries. So, so you know, it's it's difficult to underscore just how disturbing all of these images are because these riots, as, as everyone has sort of pointed out, like these are not just in response to this specific murder of, uh, you know, this man. They are symptomatic of a republic that is in dire trouble, dire straits. The, the big difference, I think, particularly with, you know, those riots that have occurred in the past, one thinks here of obviously 1968, uh, yeah. particularly in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, but also 1992, the the Rodney um, King riots, um, is that, yeah, you didn't have this ingredient of a, of a president, you know, deliberately stoking division in this kind of way. Um, you certainly had politicians hoping to benefit, hoping to, to, to um, you know, be able to coast to power on the back of that kind of conflict, but not stoking it. And, I'm, you know, you're sort of reminded, or at least I've been reminded, of some of the things that were said about the ideas of Steve Bannon in the very early period of this presidency and, you know, the, the, the kind of philosophy, for want of a better word, that actually welcomes um, massive social conflict as some kind of almost ordeal by fire that will lead to uh, uh, whatever, to whatever end it is that these sorts of characters uh, see, uh, you know, coming. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think there's a kind of um, a certain type of um, almost apocalyptic um, kind of thinking that goes behind some of this far-right stuff that seems to be really playing out at the moment. In Trump's case, it does seem more opportunistic. Um, but, you know, um, we're not just dealing with uh, a president here. We're clearly dealing with a movement. It remains a movement. And in terms of democracy, I mean, does anyone really um, envisage 
uh, someone like Trump taking an adverse election result in a straightforward way if that's what happens at the end of the year? And what happens if we have a situation like in 2000 where there is contestation over it? Does anyone really think he's going to go easily? Are we confident that that wouldn't be accompanied by violence? I'm certainly not. I think one of the things which actually is an advantage for the for the sake of the health of the United States is that the Supreme Court is now deemed to be essentially uh, nicely stacked uh, on the Republican side, uh, so that if it comes down to a question of the legitimacy of an election come November or post November, uh, no one can say that it's a uh, you know Democrat stacked Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court comes down and says, "Look, I'm sorry, you got to go." Um, there is at least that advantage that uh, you know they can't say he can't get up and say, "Well, you're a classic, you know, Democrat stacked court." Uh, I, you know, I, I I reject your findings. That's a long way ahead of ourselves uh, in in many ways. I think looking at where we are right now, I think a mistake that is made is the view that Trump is an idiot, and I don't think he's an idiot. I think he he is callously incurious about reality in some ways. But in terms of his political tactical plays, he is uh, cunning. And um, and what we're seeing, I think, is a quite deliberate seizing of an opportunity to shift a conversation away from his inadequacies in dealing with the pandemic. We're not talking about the pandemic right now. We're talking about, um, depending on who you're listening to in the United States, you're either talking about uh, civil rights abuses against individuals uh, like Mr. Floyd, or alternatively, you're talking, as a lot of people will be talking about, about uh, looting and about, if, if you look at some of the conservative, uh, the torrent of stuff coming out of the conservative press and, and websites and other stuff coming in the, out of the United States, has they're, they're not talking about death of black people uh, at the hands of police. They're showing pictures, and the pictures are don't have to be invented. They exist of trashed police cars uh, with, um, you know, with, with graffiti on them saying all kinds of, uh, of anti-police, you know, things in colourful language, but also lots of vision of looting. And there's a really interesting moment at one of those uh, looting scenes where a voice can be heard in the background saying, uh, everything you steal is a vote for the president. Is, or, or is getting is getting Trump reelected? Someone there is smart enough to recognise that the this the scenes that you're seeing of people going on mass into the Target stores and all the rest of it, and carting out home goods, etc. That it is a terribly bad look, and in fact supports it. Ultimately, reinforces the president and and someone in there lamenting and shouting out to people, you know, basically don't steal stuff because this is working to his his gain. That's an absolutely brilliant point. I was going to come to that because there are fears uh, by the Black Lives Matter group and uh, and other civil right, long-standing civil rights organisations, that that anarchists and Antifa and whoever else is uh, is sort of involved in this, including I guess just by, by the look of it from all that looting, just some straight out you know opportunist street criminals, uh, that all of these people are actually fumbling the uh, you know this moment of history. Uh, there's a view, for example, that uh, Similar things happened in 1968, and that this helped Nixon get elected in 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 68. Uh, that 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 this whole process may be happening again. That by just having this completely untidy, violent, uh, opportunistic, and uh, and and sort of disgraceful behaviour right across the board, uh, that this is uh, doing more harm than good. Do you think that's uh, a fear, Frank? Well, yeah, I think that uh, the, the comparison mark with 1968. And Nixon, I think, is a really, a really valid one. Um, you know, in, in that particular case, 
Um, you know, it was obviously the middle of the Vietnam War. Um, that had been the, the issue, hadn't it, for, for some time. Johnson basically announced that he, President Johnson, he wasn't going to recontest. And so it was a contest between Nixon and Hubert Humphrey. And, yeah, the, the violence, the sheer violence of that year um, uh, really told against the, the Democrats. Of course, they lost a candidate along the way in, in Robert Kennedy themselves. Um, and I, I think just the whole sort of... Um, possibility of stimulating a hell of a lot of white fear around what's going on at the moment um you know could have all sorts of electoral consequences in view of what we know about the kind of you know sort of uh, electoral sums i guess that were so evident back in 2016 and and uh you know uh, i yeah I, f- I would fully accept i think that that, that trump is you know in, in a very cunning clever way as you said really trying to shift uh, the the language the the topic to elsewhere he's tried obviously uh, you know a kind of sinophobia you know taking China as as um, or fear of China hostility to China trying to make that into a major issue to direct attention away from COVID nineteen and yeah the the current um, violence is giving him uh, another opportunity to do that I do think there is an important difference though which is that. Uh, leaders in the past have always uh, found respectable ways to prime and make, uh, you know, white people fearful of, of, you know, black violence. And the difference here is that Trump is not doing that. He's, he's nothing respectable or even um, seemly about the way he behaves. And there, there, even though I, this is definitely. Uh, an opportunity to rile up a certain percentage of the American people, it it may have the effect of sort of underscoring the fact that he is a president who has lost control of safety and security in this country who has no response to an unfolding public health disaster and doesn't seem to have much of an answer on the economy either. So, Depending on how easy it is to vote and how safe it is to vote, uh, it, it could actually drive away an important kind of subset, considering that Joe Biden isn't exactly a, a, a radical. I was reminded of the of the uh, you know the final scenes in the recent Wacom Phoenix film of the Joker. Uh, you know, where you just see this sort of anarchy on the streets. There's this kind of celebration of, you know, a breakout of all of these different frustrations and, and a pushback against, uh, you know, the crooked system, the crooked politicians and everything else. Um, you know, th- th- it feels that directionless at the moment, don't you think, Hugh? Well, I, I, I think, I think the points be, that have been made here are, are sound in the sense that where there is a breakdown in law and order, traditionally people have run to conservatives. And that was the, the Nixon effect back in 1968. Whether Trump is a conservative or not is another, is, is an intriguing, uh, question. Uh, but in traveling through the United States after the election in 2016, I went back there for the midterms and so on. And I've, I've been back there on reporting trips since. It was really a kind of a interesting mind game to look at uh, white males. And as you travel around the place, there are a lot of white males in the United States. And you look at them and you think there's a 70% chance you voted for Trump. And this 
if so, so that means that you're, you're not, you know, there's a lot about the so-called, you know, flyover states, the sort of the Tiger Kings type uh, characters with their mullets and carrying around their guns and uh, and all these other kinds of almost, you know, hillbilly um, sense of who are the Trump supporters. But that is to underestimate the degree to which in 2016 Trump um, was favoured by uh, the traditional elite group, I suppose, although many of them feel as if they've been cast out by the elites, the, the white white males. And those, again, I return to the, the looting scenes, work perfectly to try to bring those back into the fold for him because there's a fear element that goes within it. I think there's, there is very savvy calculations. Trump was m- totally underestimated in his campaigning. If you go back to 2016, when he kept on turning up in these uh, blue-collar white uh, areas of the United States, which um, why is he campaigning there? And the the sort of the smart people in the room over the Democratic Party were kind of saying, well, look, the guy's lost the plot. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's, you know, he can't win these states like Wisconsin and and Michigan and he he can't, you know, et cetera. You know, he's he's, (laughs) whistling Dixie's probably the wrong phrase to use in these circumstances but <laughs> but you know and yet he was very savvy about it he knew that they were there to be one the working class white male was there to be one and and so in a sense he's he's going for that and to to get back to the Steve Bannon point that I think Frank made uh the initial uh, strategic advisor to Trump when he took office Bannon is an interesting character and all those who were who essentially tied around him the Breitbart mob and all the rest of it because they <clears throat> essentially wanted chaos because they believe that chaos uh, essentially tears down who they see as their their sworn enemy. And it's not poor black people and it's not Hispanic people. It's not women per se. It's cultural elites that they felt mm. was against them. And it's essentially a class war against those old Republicans. There was an interview by Troy Bramston um, with the splendid guy, Steve Hess, who is now well in his 80s, but who worked as a young man as a speechwriter when he was 25 for um, Eisenhower. Uh, he was at the Republican convention that, that chose Eisenhower as the nominee and then worked for a whole bunch of presidents, including uh, one Democrat, uh, Jimmy Carter, briefly. But he is essentially... A, a voice, he's appalled by Trump, but essentially he is a voice, a man who's been living at the center of, of power, but just off to one side as a mere assistant, essentially, to president after president after president. Um, but a member of essentially that old Republican Party, which was conservative for sure, um, but which which took the responsibility of government very, very seriously and the duties towards the citizenry very, very seriously. And and what he says is that that part of the Republican Party is gone forever and it, it has been destroyed by Trump. The point's been made by others, but his position being so close to that business gives it extra weight. So if we look at the chaos that's running at the moment, this is a man who thrives on chaos, uh, who, who can generate chaos, who will then try to turn chaos and bend chaos to his advantage. Uh, and nothing at all is sacred to him. The, you know, the, the the calamitous death toll from the pandemic, when he could have, had he been responsible to it, saved tens of thousands of lives. The evidence is there that if he'd acted even a, a week earlier, that 36,000 lives, according to, you know, some modeling, which he disputes, of course, would have been saved. The chaos of it is something that he enjoys. To get back to your um, your Joker movie, 
I think there is a bit of that, and he sees opportunities in it because the one thing that he can't win in is a stable process going into an election. He will be defeated on his failures. But a chaotic situation gives him a chance. Yeah, that's right. And he effectively ran against that, very much that kind of establishment candidate in 2016 uh, against the the favoured Democrat, Hillary Clinton, uh, very much part of the political establishment, a, a sort of a, almost a dynastic family in terms of uh, politics on the Democratic side. He was running against a very slick machine, uh, and yet uh, and yet he came up uh, Trump's, if I can uh, use that appalling word. Um, I, I'm also minded, uh, reminded as you uh, say that, you um, of Dominique Cummings and, and the role he played, that anti-establishment strand in, in his thinking and the role he played in the, in the um, Brexit referendum initially and has been playing as a kind of an internal disruptor in Tory politics. He's disrupting in all the wrong ways at the moment, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some, some quite interesting parallels, some differences as well, but some interesting parallels with what's been going on in conservative politics in the UK. Well, I think the digital age has empowered uh, chaotic populists. The difficulty is, is that when trouble rears its head, when events emerge, chaotic populists are ill-suited to make things better. So all they can do for their own survival is to uh, is to try to make them worse, to, to make things worse, and then try to find a popular strand that will keep them going. And it is so striking. You made the point in your introduction, the difference in outcome from the pandemic between the UK, the US and Australia. And whatever the failings are of, uh, of Morrison and whatever his limitations might be, partly, I think, because we do have compulsory voting and the centre still holds to a certain degree in Australia, the uh, chaotic populism liberated by the digital age, is proving to be a deadly model for our democracies. And that, I think, is really profound. I'd be interested to hear what others have, what they think of it. Well, there's also the relative uh, strengths of our institutions versus those two states. I mean, you know, Brexit has been profoundly disruptive for the United Kingdom and exhausting. I mean, even people who were against Brexit uh, and leaving the European Union were, were kind of happy to just see Brexit get done because the alternative of constant gridlock um, was profoundly exhausting. You, you know, we have so, uh, 10 years of austerity. The fact that the British health system wasn't really coping with winter before COVID-19 has come along has really, you know, the sort of cuts, the constant cuts to the NHS, uh, the, 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 you know, we, we don't need to sort of uh, explain to um, listeners the reality that the United States medical system is one of the most expensive on the planet, one of the least efficient, really poor at actually delivering health outcomes to the whole population. I mean, is it any surprise that... Um, when you've got these institutional weaknesses in this sort of democratic field, as you point out, uh, Hugh, and you've got these institutional weaknesses in just the way government services are actually delivered because of where they stand. Whereas if you look around the world, you see different political systems that actually invest in public services. They might have different, uh, you know, politically persuaded governments. There might be federal systems. There might be unitary systems. But those institutions are functioning. Those systems haven't been degraded by... Uh, you know, endless budget cuts and politics there is not, uh, hasn't sort of swung around divisive, exhausting culture battles for five years. It's not surprising that you see those states do a lot better. Yeah, I mean, 
I agree with that. I think that the point about the centre holding in Australia is a really critical one. Um, I, mean, I remember the historian Stuart McIntyre giving a public lecture two or three years ago in which he compared Australia with New Zealand and Canada as other examples, really, of, of countries where the centre appeared to be holding. And he linked it up with also the, the, the lack of really fierce anti-immigration sentiments in those places. So, I mean, of course, there are anti-immigration views in all of them, but nothing like what we've seen in terms of, uh, you know, Brexit in the UK or the United States. And um, I think that has a lot to do with the karma politics that we're dealing with in in Australia, that that, that kind of scapegoating, um, whilst a constant, you know, kind of permanent public temptation to, you know, quote Oscar Wilde, um, you know, for politicians is uh, uh, less potent in Australia. And uh, I think that's also really important when we look at issues around public trust and, um, you know, what happens when societies are under intense pressure. So we have our problems in, in Australia, but the reality is that Australia, like New Zealand, like Canada, has managed to withstand the pressure, pressures of the present a hell of a lot better than the UK or or um or the United States. Let's take a quick break there and uh, come back and talk about some of those uh, Australian problems and opportunities as they've uh, recently arisen. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before the break, Frank was making a point. Marie, you wanted to respond? Yeah, I wanted to sort of... um basically build on what Frank was saying and um, actually in the political science literature, the research that has been undertaken into what drives populism, a lot of this research comes from Europe in particular because uh, you've got lots of states and you've got lots of populist parties because you've got multi-party systems. Um, and, yeah, there is um, a, a lot of sort of truth to what Frank is sort of saying in the sense that what we kind of know about what drives populist voting is sort of two types of things and they tend to be related to the political circumstance or the specific circumstances of the time. So, you know, when economic times are poor, uh, you know, populist sentiment, uh, especially against immigrants, is sort of driven by, um, you know, competing economic claims like these people are stealing our jobs. But uh, when times are good, it's all structured around threats to the cultural homogeneity of um of the state, which is much more a potent force in a place like Europe or the United Kingdom and kind of more complicated and written over in the United States because it's obviously an immigration nation. Um, 
and has a discourse around immigrants coming to that country that doesn't exist in Europe or the UK where really it was about bringing in migrant workers. Uh, but, of course, the way race functions in the United States is, is different again. I mean, the United States is always the outlier. Um, there is no country like it on earth. It's not comparable. It's its own thing. Anyway, that was all. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a very good observation, uh, and we could talk about it indefinitely. Uh, let's swing our focus uh, back here, though, because as I said in the introduction, there are a number of uh, interesting issues that have happened over the last week, and depending on on your perspective of them, they've all got a, a strong positive aspect as well as some negatives. I want to start with the Palace Letters decision. Frank Bongiorno, can you just uh, explain what the Palace Letters are for those people listening who? may have forgotten or may not be familiar with the, the background to it. Just explain what the palace letters are and, 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 and what this 6-1 decision of the High Court actually means. Yeah, so the palace letters are a group of, it seems, about 200 letters um, that basically passed between uh, the palace, between uh, probably not directly the Queen, but certainly um, the, the the palace establishment and Sir John Kerr between 19... Uh, 74 and about 1976, uh, when he was Governor-General. The interest of historians in them, uh, not surprisingly, is particularly in relation to the dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975 and whether these letters shed any light on that. Now, um, these haven't been accessible to uh, researchers or to the public. Um, We know bits and pieces uh, about them because they've sometimes been quoted in other letters that historians have seen so that their existence was pretty well known and 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 you know we know bits and pieces but we certainly don't know the 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 main content of them um jenny hocking a a professor of history at monash university has been running a a really a a crowdfunded case and also using pro bono um solicitors and barristers since about 2016 uh, in order to get these open, the, the National Archives of Australia's position during that period, uh, building on what they say is an established convention, is that these were personal letters and therefore didn't come under the normal provisions of the Archives Act, which have a, a well, these days, a 20-year um, a period before records can be opened. It's a bit longer for some other records, but the standard thing is is 20 years. So the, the archives position is that these weren't standard um, government records coming under the Archives Act, that they were personal papers or personal records and therefore subject to much more restrictive conditions. And, uh, yeah, th- this has been fought through the courts over a number of years in a full federal court hearing, uh, what, I suppose a year or two ago. Um, it was a two one decision. Um, and yes, now we've seen it go all the way to the High Court uh, with a ringing victory for uh, for Jenny Hocking and for openness. It's quite a win for, I, I suppose, Australia's sovereignty because really what was in, in uh, question was who owned these, whether they were, as you say, whether they could be regarded as private correspondence between the Queen's man and the Queen, effectively. Uh, the Queen of England happens to also be the Queen of Australia in a legal sense, but many people would say, "Hang on, this is, th- these letters go. These letters were written by a, in an official capacity by Australia's head of state. Therefore, they ought to be accessible by Australians." Uh, and uh, it's quite an outrage, really, on on any kind of normal way of thinking that uh, it could be interpreted in any other way. Yeah. Comment. So the lack of access to these 
papers has has certainly been framed as a an issue of uh, sovereignty. That is that you know um, uh, the decisions uh, about access uh, lay really with the palace and. Uh, uh, you know, in the face of objections to the the records becoming available from the Queen, that they weren't going to be available to Australia, and that seemed to many people to be uh, rather hard, given that we're talking about an event that's so central to Australian democracy, um, and uh, you know, one that happened a long time ago and remains a very controversial one, nonetheless. I mean, people want to know. About and a lot of that controversy, so Frank, a lot of that controversy has been around the legality, really, of what Sir John Kerr did, what advice he took, who he took advice from. Did he inform the palace ahead of time? Did he, in fact, even possibly entertain an ongoing discussion with uh, palace officials Um about his reservations of, uh, in the Australian Prime Minister and what he might, uh, what he might eventually do. Uh, these are utterly uh, critical, uh, imp- you know, sort of um, pieces of information in terms of understanding what happened. Uh, these letters could shed light on all of that. They could, yeah. I mean, at one end, of course, yeah, you have con- conspiracy theories that are about, you know, um, the palace and the CIA and all the rest of it, and I suspect we're not going to. Uh, basically get confirmation of that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it's pretty clear that, that you know, there was a substantial correspondence. Um, there are fragments of evidence uh, that suggest that particularly in relation to Kerr's fear that Whitlam would advise the Queen to sack him, that is, that, uh, you know, that, the, that Gough Whitlam could, there could be a kind of race to the palace, I think, was the idea that was floating around during 1975 and, and that Whitlam might be able to arrange for, for Kerr's dismissal before Kerr could arrange for the government's dismissal. And it, it seems pretty clear that this worried Kerr. And I guess what Jenny Hocking and others who are particularly interested in um, this issue, um, uh, you know, are really looking at is, you know, what kinds of communications were going on between Kerr and the palace? I mean, was this particular issue the subject of those and what was being said on each side? So, again, we have fragments um, uh, um, that, you know, suggest that there there were exchanges around um, this particular issue of the race to the palace, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens um, now. I mean, in terms of what happens next... um, the, the, the archives now will actually have to assess how much of these uh, letters we get to see because the Archives Act has pretty wide uh, exemptions that, that, you know, can actually be uh, used to, to um, well, in some instances to um, prevent documents from being seen at all. In others, um, from uh, you know, you, you have redactions where particular parts will be blacked out and researchers won't be able to see them, so partial exemption, if you like. Um, the, the, the archives uh, has said that the Director General David Fricker has says, you know, we're, we're a pro-disclosure organisation. Um, they have about 90 days under the Act to deal with this, although it has to be said that the archives has tended in the past to treat that 90 days in relation to some of their records as uh, uh, probably broadly indicative, I'd describe it, rather than uh, a, strict, <laughs> a strict law. Um, but very polite of you, Frank. It is very, very polite. polite that I've been on this issue on a number of occasions. <laughs> but in this particular case, I mean, there are obviously uh, yeah, strong legal and political reasons why they're going to act, I think, fairly efficiently. Um, what I'm very interested in will be whether the whole issue of potential damage to British-Australian relations could be raised in this. Um, 
I wonder about that because, as I think you pointed out, Mark, she um, uh, was is Queen of Australia, and you know it seems to me this could be potentially treated. It depends what's in them, of course, but potentially you would think that this is really about the Australian Constitution and about our own system of government, and has uh, a very limited uh, amount to do with Australian-British relations. Um, that said, um, before the Australia Acts of the mid 1980s, there were still direct relations between Australian state governments and the palace. So to, to that extent, uh, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office um, was interested in what was going on and uh, potentially the whole issue of British-Australian relations could come up in the decision-making about what happens next. But one would hope that we will get to see all or most of these letters uh, you know, within the next uh, several months. Can I just go? Uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued. I think it's a great decision by the court, by the way. Cause, but, uh, but then I'm a journalist. I like to see stuff come out of the open. But I wonder about the unintended consequences of it, because if you look at a governor general and and a relationship with the queen and her heirs and successors, if you're writing off these kinds of letters, say you are in the middle of a constitutional crisis, as uh, John Kerr un- undoubtedly was, and you are genuinely looking for advice or and you're trying to give information, and there's a kind of a just on the sheer volume of the letters, it was obviously. Uh, he, he didn't seem to be doing it just as a pro forma issue of uh, of just sort of sending a you know a, a sort of a, a blank missive off to meet his requirements, his reporting requirements, or something. He seems to have genuinely uh, been seeking guidance from uh, the Queen and her advisors, and and that's what makes these letters intriguing. So presumably there would have been some frankness about it. And again, that's what makes it intriguing. But if a Governor General in a future um, constitutional crisis thinks, you know, within my lifetime, it is conceivable, and and particularly say if we go into the heirs and successors of the current queen within the, the lifetime of, the, of a future monarch, uh, this could all come spilling out. So it's best if I censor now. It's best if I write nothing that's going to be embarrassing to anyone. In fact, it's probably best if I don't actually ask for any advice or give any direct guidance. Uh, I should really tone all this down because I don't want to embarrass myself and I don't want to embarrass, you know, the the new King William who might emerge in the years ahead or whatever it might be. And so, in a sense, one of the consequences potentially of that, I think, if you go back to the whole Republican debate, is uh, we want one of us to be our head of state. That's the argument of Republicans. We don't want the Queen. We want an Australian to be the head of state, to which the constitutional monarchists say, we do have an Australian who's the head of state. It's the governor general. And then you get into an argument as to who is the head of state under the constitution. Is it the governor general or is it the queen or the monarch? To my reading of it as a humble journo, it has always seemed to me as if it is the monarch and the governor general is a representative. It's a subordinate role. But in a sense, if the advice which is going to come as a consequence of this decision of the high court is going to become blandified, made essentially just not interesting because they're afraid of embarrassing anyone. Oddly, it leaves the responsibilities much more in the hands in a constitutional crisis within Australia in the hands of the governor general. The monarch becomes less relevant to that process, less a source of advice, less someone that you have to advise uh, through the thought processes. And in a sense, makes that governor general uh, however you interpret the, the constitution itself, makes them more responsible as a head of state within Australia, oddly, by that sort of form of logic, which may be a flawed form of logic. To me, this decision actually supports the constitutional monarchist cause 
because it makes the governor general more likely to act as an independent head of state in the course of the next constitutional crisis. So therefore, it doesn't matter that there might be this tenuous link that still goes back to the palace. Um, It really has no relevance in reality. what do you what do you th- what do you think of that little kind? Well, of let, let let me respond just briefly before Frank does, um, and and Maria by all means as well. But uh, isn't the constitutional crisis of nineteen seventy five really the fact that the governor general sacked the prime minister? Uh, that that is the the constitutional crisis in a sense, and the how that came about is of absolutely critical interest to Australia. There have been some changes in law since, but. Um, I think it's quite fascinating to see the extent to which there was any kind of premeditation on this and particularly if that existed, you know, for what length of time that idea, that possibility existed in John Kerr's mind. Uh, now, the, the letters may or may not reveal that. I suspect they won't reveal intemperate language on the part of the palace but uh, they may uh, they may reveal um, some of what Sir John Kerr was thinking and in his interpretation of uh, you know the opposition's blocking of supply bills. Yeah, don't get me wrong; I'm totally in favour of the letters coming out, and I think I think to get insight, particularly after this passage of time, to get insight into that process is vital to our historic sense of of that you know hugely disruptive and painful time in Australian history. Uh, we deserve to know. Enough time has passed. Uh, we should know. I think it's a good decision. I'm more intrigued about what will be in the mind of a future governor general facing a constitutional crisis um, and what the relationship might be in terms of communications with the palace, whoever the monarch might be, in future and how that might change and how that subtly changes the relationship between the monarch and the governor general. And to my mind... Frank, we were talking, Frank, we were talking about... We were talking about uh, crisis, uh, so chaos before, and uh, you know, just uh, you know, sort of lobbing a a big rock in the pond and and seeing what happens when everything's upset. Is perhaps there's a good argument for it here, even if uh, even if it does uh, un- unleash some of those forces that that Hugh is talking about. Uh, that may be of use in Australia in terms of upsetting the apple cart, if I can mix metaphors, and uh, and 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 leading us more uh, purposefully towards being a republic. Yeah, I mean, my main interest in it, of course, is as a historian. I want to see what's in those those letters. Um, I mean, I am interested. I'm not a someone who's written much on 1975, but I'm certainly interested in um, what passed between John Kerr and the palace. Um, I mean, this is part of a broader um, issue, I guess, of of you know what documents uh, we should see and when we should see them and. Um, in Australia, you know, the, the trend of legislation has been towards pro-disclosure. I mean, it went from a 30-year rule for cabinet documents to 20 years back during the, the period of the Rudd government, which was largely um, shaped by um, uh, John Faulkner at the, at the time. Um, there have been similar directions in Britain, but one of the interesting debates that's been going on in Britain for some years is the growing secrecy of the Royal Archive, that it's becoming much harder for researchers to actually gain access to material there. And in fact, often quite old material. I think Julia Baird, for instance, in writing about Queen Victoria, found 
uh, a lot of obstruction along the way. Um, and, you know, I have colleagues in Britain who work on the 20th century monarchy and its place in the, you know, English political, the British political system. And they, you know, are often critical um, of, you know, the, the, the trend towards secrecy. Um, so, you know, the, the, the legislative trends in Australia, at least, are quite promising. And obviously, with this particular decision, um, you know, that's had some support from the High Court itself as as well. Um, the notion, I guess, that the, the documents concerned were, were private or personal seemed to fly in the face of most people's common sense. I mean, it seemed absurd that, that a document that was so obviously related to the operation of the political system could be classified in, in that kind of way. But this had been the position um, or the legal position as the archives understood it. And um, I think Hugh's right that this does raise some interesting questions about um, you know, how future Governors-General will regard that sort of correspondence. They can now look forward to it being available uh, in archives to researchers much earlier uh, than, uh, you know, under previous arrangements. It could well affect the way in which they operate. But I, you know, I, I rather suspect that, you know, there have been significant changes perhaps in the relationship between the Governor-General and the Palace in the years since John Kerr. There have been legal changes since then, particularly in the 1980s. But more generally, I think we're probably a much more Republican political culture today than we were back then as well. So, um, you know, what's interesting is we will inevitably, I think, learn a, a great deal more about the role of the Governor-General, um, you know, as, as an office, uh, because uh, the, the same um, principles that are, are applying to these palace letters are also going to apply to other correspondence that remains closed, for instance, between Richard Casey and, uh, and, and, and the Queen. So, um, you know, this will be, these will be good times, I think, for historians who are interested in these sorts of issues. I mean, if you sort of think about it this way, like we already know that Kerr was acting in ways that were questionable at best, you know, seeking advice from the Chief Justice of the High Court, who used to be the Attorney General in the Liberal government, for example, amongst other things. Um, the documents may reveal, in fact, that the Queen behaved with utmost propriety and um, you know, behaved in such a way that befitted her role of as being non-political um, and impartial, particularly as she was really not a resident of of this country. Um, I mean, we already know that FOI uh, laws, freedom of information laws, have changed the way bureaucrats write uh, in communications with each other, um, and we've already sort of got the problem of other forms of technology, um, providing, you know, alternative ways of communicating that aren't necessarily well captured by the Archives Act, even though they, they, they ought to be, you know, WhatsApp and, and stuff like um, that. Um, but I sort of agree with Frank in the sense that the Governor-General's role has no doubt um, changed and um, I don't necessarily think it's necessarily a... Um, bad thing that the Governor-General um, sort of sticks to the purview of what is kind of fit and proper and available to him here uh, rather than necessarily seeking advice from what is in effect a foreign entity. Well, that's right. And, and, it, and it, it just under, under even Australian law, I mean, uh, Britain... Uh, 
whether Britain was indeed a foreign entity remained very unclear in 1975. It remains very clear now because of later High Court decisions. So, so we are, you know, we're dealing with a very different world, I think, of 1975 compared with that of 2020. Let's turn quickly now to the robo-debt decision. Uh, take out the Trash Friday last week, the second week in a row where the government's had to reveal, you know, something embarrassing. The week before it was, uh, you know, $60 billion worth of uh, um, underspend or, 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 or overestimation in the JobKeeper program. Uh, this week uh, we had the Prime Minister out talking about the end of COAG and uh, the, the making the National Cabinet permanent. It was a long and, and, uh, and wide-ranging press conference and yet within effectively within minutes of that press conference ending on Friday afternoon, there comes out a statement from Stuart Robert, the Services Minister, saying that the robo-debt debacle that has been running on and which is now the subject of a class action uh, will uh, will see the government refund $721 million, best, best part of three-quarters of a billion dollars uh, that has been taken from people under using a an automated system which averaged income and so forth and which had all kinds of problems and which caused all kinds of anguish for people and, and led to all kinds of uh, terrible outcomes uh, and the government is now admitted through its actions that this system absolutely stank. Um, it has not, however, apologised for it, Maria. Uh, we, we, we get everything we need to know really just from the timing of the announcement on Friday and the way that the Prime Minister made sure that he wasn't able to be asked questions on it. Um, but uh, the government's still not apologising. Well, I mean, you know, I'm ever the uh, optimist on these podcasts, and I think these uh, these happenings reaffirm my belief that, uh, you know, we're seeing a new order and a new era. Um, no, this 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 stinks. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is appalling. Um, it is good that the government has finally admitted that what they were doing was in effect illegal. Um, it is appalling that they are sort of once again seeking to dodge scrutiny rather than taking responsibility for. Um, their actions and subjecting themselves to the decision. I think it is particularly unfortunate that um, the Prime Minister uh, didn't make himself available for questions given he was the Treasurer alongside the Finance Minister that actually introduced um, and announced this scheme during the sort of 2016 election, which was supposed to be a $2.3 billion revenue raising uh uh, operation over four years and which they proudly proclaimed would be a $1.1 billion saving to the budget compared to profligate Labor's spending at the time. Um, so I think what is also interesting about this announcement is they, they, you know, effectively they must have advice that says that the averaging itself, um, you know, is illegal, which is uh, different to some of the discussion around when the decision was brought down, which related to the problem of averaging, but also um, as a function of raising debts and, and ineffectively like what the government has done and what the government has been found guilty of doing is inappropriately enriching itself. Right, so basically taking money from people that it doesn't have a right to take money from to enrich itself, which is why it has agreed to pay seven hundred and twenty-one billion dollars, uh, sorry, million dollars, um, in order to avoid losing that case and having to explain in front of a judge uh, the fact that they likely knew that there were problems with this scheme for a while. 
I just didn't want to Hugh, say. Yeah, Hugh Remington, there, it seems to me there's uh, there's a pattern here, isn't there? If we think about uh, Angus Taylor, we think about the sports rorts issue, we think about uh, the Liberal Party's teeny-eared advertising during the bushfire crisis, which was being uh, you know, simultaneously bungled by the federal government. We think about the JobKeeper issue I mentioned and our robo-debt. No one ever seems to be to blame. No one is ever accountable for yes, this. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Because if you take out the handling of the pandemic, which has been generally pretty good, um, but which arguably was run by the states because the, some of the early uh, uh, responses from Morrison were a bit all, all over the place. He was very quick in calling it a pandemic that was good um, and, and closing off flights to the, to the UK, to, to China, and then there was that kind of loss of focus and then once the national cabinet got going it, it started to hit its straps uh, but then credit to those state leaders who stood up and, and asserted what they wanted going but if you take that out of it um, you're then looking at a, a whole sequence of really appalling bits of leadership and this goes again well, the reason Morrison doesn't want to talk about it is this goes directly to Morrison he was the treasurer to 2016 he, when this was being cooked up he wrote it into the books of the budget as Maria's just pointed out um, he has had fingerprints all over this the whole way. And look at the numbers. The money that is being given back uh, is to 470,000 people. And that's nearly half a million people, obviously, across Australia, the most vulnerable people, the least able to get up and fight, uh, you know, government bureaucracies, uh, you know, and when they did want to fight it, they were told, if you want to contest, you contest, but you've got to pay the debt first. And by this date, or otherwise all these bad things are going to happen. Suicides took place. There are claims there were 2,000 suicides. Suicide's a very complicated question. But whatever it is, these are enormous numbers of people who were pinned by a system which is now unlawful, um, but which was always noxious and careless for the people who were at the receiving end of this. And I would say recklessly and gleefully careless of the damage that this was doing to people who are vulnerable within our society. It is an appalling act. And the fact that Morrison runs and hides and, and doesn't want to answer any questions for it, that it's taken out of the trash on a Friday afternoon, uh, just shows the cowardice, the moral cowardice uh, that lies at the heart of this process. So robo-debt should, should stand. There are other examples, but should stand as the high watermark of, of perfidious, perfidious behavior by this government, by appalling behavior by this government, because it was punching down at the most vulnerable. It was unlawful. It was wrong in concept. It was wrong in execution. It did untold damage to people. Uh, when they get caught out on it because of legal processes, they then try to hide it away and all, everyone runs away and scurries away like cockroaches and when, when the light goes on. It is disgraceful. And the degree to which the Rudd government was held to account, as it should have done for the Pink Bat scheme. The Pink Bat scheme, you remember, was an attempt to actually buy the government to give money out to find ways to keep in employment people who were relatively low skilled uh, and whose jobs were disappearing. And the, the business of putting uh, you know, insulation into roofs uh, was considered to be a, a good scheme that could be rapidly rolled out that had benefits environmentally in terms of you know, 
bringing down people's you know electricity bills and emissions and so on while at the same time employing all these people so its purpose was to was to put money down to to people at, at the bottom end it resulted in uh, four deaths it as a consequence of that it has become the poster moment in uh, the failings uh, in in process really of of the rudd government uh, in its operational um, management and and it's sort of been branded up against Rudd. There was a commission of inquiry into it, all this stuff. Robodebt dwarfs this by orders of magnitude. And the notion that people still know what Pink Bats is a decade on, um, it's still it's a short form, short, short language form for the failings of the Rudd government. There should be in a decade from now, surely if there is any reasonable way to assess the Morrison government, there should be a, a there's something where kids, every kid knows that robo-debt was an absolute example of a total and utter failing of the government. And as I say, it's not just a, an operational failure, it was a conceptual failure because it was about taking the most vulnerable and giving them no chance. Yeah, to get a budget surplus. I've got nothing wrong with budget surpluses. I mean, budget surpluses are fine. Let's have budget surpluses. But the but the fact of it is, is that they used an algorithmic system which was flawed in concept. It was flawed, and they didn't care that it was flawed. And if it was, and that it was unlawful, and that and that if you were caught in it, you had no real ways to fight back, because you were required to pay it before you could contest it. And for people who are already absolutely at marginal financial circumstances to be hit with multiple thousand dollar bills, which they didn't owe, they didn't owe them, and they had to come up with it, is a disgusting indictment of public policy. It is indeed. Now, let's move from cowardice to consensus. Mr. Consensus, indeed. Coag is dead. Long live the National Cabinet. Frank Bongiorno, is this just marketing? Uh, do you think that uh, the National Cabinet uh, you know, replaces COAG on a one-for-one basis but operates in a whole lot of you know, ways that is so much better than COAG? Or, or is this a good example or another example? I guess some of this remains to be seen, but could this be another example of Scott Morrison's well-known facility for marketing? Yeah, well, he's talking about rationalising COAG, um, reducing it to a if you like, a, a smaller number of elements. So it may be that it's it's sort of linked to, to that process. Uh, but it does, I guess, look like repackaging and rebranding at the moment. I mean, the idea that, that you know, this is going to somehow observe cab- cabinet rules of secrecy and confidentiality strikes me as not not likely to last terribly long when you consider, or perhaps perhaps a better way of putting it would be it probably will uh, follow the ordinary processes of cabinet secrecy uh, or rather <laughs> lack of secrecy that we've seen in recent years where essentially the Daily Telegraph is used for announcing cabinet decisions before they've even happened. So it may work like that, but um, on the whole, it, it does look like a, a kind of rebranding of, of COAG in the context, I guess, of you know, the, the sort of wave that Morrison has been riding in relation to the pandemic, that, that you know, there is a perception that, um, I guess, Australia's governmental processes, its federal processes in particular, have operated with some success during this. And this is an attempt 
um, you know, it's a kind of post-war reconstruction thing. We're going to continue it, you know, outside the context of the pandemic because it's such a butte idea. And, of course, it reflects this, you know, this effort of Morrison at the moment, at least, to present himself as a middle ground type of figure, which is also... Reflected. And we're seeing that on industrial relations as well, aren't we? We're seeing this uh, this, this move to, uh, you know, some people are describing it somewhat uh, floridly in my view, but uh, describing it as a, a coalition version of the accord. But certainly we're seeing some overtures from the coalition towards the ACTU in terms of, um, um, you know, consulting and, and making some reforms that actually might be shared rather than just imposed yeah and and uh, again i mean it is hard not to miss the marketing aspect and it, it's striking that that you know morrison has set this up in a way that kind of accords with the leadership style that we've already re- uh, noted in relation to robo debt he's never quite around when things um sort of falter and you'd have to rate the chances of this one faltering as pretty high i mean he's listed a number of areas enterprise agreement making and uh, compliance, award simplification, uh, casual and fixed-term employment, greenfield sites, but, you know, not much indication of what he actually has in mind. And, uh, um, you know, I, I would have thought that the chances of really substantial agreement here between the different sides, particularly business and unions, is is pretty low because I- inevitably it's going to raise the issue of costs. I mean, if you, um, for instance, are, are basically telling unions, you know, we want limitations on casual and fixed-term employment because it leads to job insecurity, well, business is going to reply, well, that's going to increase our costs. That's going to, that's actually going to make things less flexible than, than, than they are already, and we don't want it. So it's going to, I think it's going to run into the basic problem that they're, they're, essentially this is about interests. It's about different interests who come to the party here uh, with, I think, relatively limited scope for finding common ground and that's why the i think the comparison with the accord is deeply problematic because i mean not only was the accord basically just between a government and unions but you know a lot of that consensus stuff in the 80s was really about things that everyone could agree on particularly that inflation was a problem that unemployment was a problem and that growth uh, had to be resumed at a much higher level than had been occurring in the late 70s and particularly the early 80s whereas um, I, I'm struggling to see uh, that kind of common ground here. Well, yeah, I think it's done a good job of making a virtue of the fact that the government doesn't actually seem to have a particular outcome it wants to be able to achieve beyond a sort of, you know, vague sentiment of finding common ground. I mean, I think it's good that he sort of indicated that, like, you know, a preparedness um, to listen. But what isn't really clear to me is, I guess, what the government in particular would be willing to sort of give up or what they would kind of be reasonable kind of concessions to make. It's 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 almost like they're providing a venue for business and unions to come to an agreement um, and so, you know, very cleverly can, t- can take credit if it actually works out but then once again can take no responsibility if it it doesn't, you know, and it, it's it's a pattern here, right? It's it's strategically buying time, and it's creating space for the government to be reactive, which which is largely what the Morrison government has been. It's been a reactive government. Hugh, finally, to you on this, uh, let's take a, a for the sake of of argument, a, a more positive uh, approach to it. Is it possible that? Scott Morrison has to some extent grown as a Prime Minister, that perhaps he's had his leadership forged in some 
bizarre way in the bushfires of, of, of the, at the start of this year in particular. And that through the COVID period, he's also, you know, come to understand a little bit more about what national leadership is about. And it's starting to show up in some of these ways that he's now finding his feet as a prime minister and trying to subtly or, or, or gently shift his government towards the, the mainstream. Well, he's certainly made plenty of mistakes, and uh, that's okay. He's still early in his days as a prime minister, and it's important that he learns from those mistakes. And I think the point you make there about the, uh, the, the response to the pandemic started to hit some sort of a, um, a stride when he wasn't trying to control the states, when he recognized there'll be alternative views to his own, that states have their own sovereign duties and responsibilities. And essentially, he took his hands back off off the lever. I'm told, I'm told if you're trying to fly a light plane, uh, the mistake that starters, you know, learners make is they grip the joystick. They're trying to hold and, and fly the plane and be in control of it. Whereas, in fact, a seasoned pilot has a very light hand on, on it, you know, so that if the planes bucking and and copping a bit of turbulence or other kinds of things that you that you're allowing the plane to adjust to the conditions that are around it if i can use that metaphor that is perhaps a little bit of what he's more willing to do to recognize that there are bumps and that rather than trying to drive through every bump uh, and assert himself into it and to you know make errors in that way he's letting people flourish around and be just a bit more of a guiding hand, that that, would be the most positive thing to it. And if out of that comes a potential new relationship, uh, you know, he may as well do it as not do it. So it's a good thing. But I wouldn't have expectations out of the industrial relations space. Uh, I wouldn't set them too highly. For one thing, the accord that did take place I remember as a young reporter covering the ACTU round in Melbourne back when the ACTU was at the centre of, of of stuff. There was still a lot of debate. There was still a lot of tension. There was still a lot of uh, fight, particularly from left-wing unions, who were very dominant in Victoria at that time, uh, to a lot of the things that were being cooked up by by Keating and and in time by, you know, in concert with Kelty and all of it being overlooked by, uh, by Hawke as the Prime Minister, former ACTU president. There was... And underlying, even though there were suspicions in the 80s and into the 90s, there was that underlying trust that they were on the same side of things. Whereas I think the expectation that um, there's ever going to be the same level of trust what between a coalition government, the business and, 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 and the unions, much diminished unions now compared with who they were, that, that would seem to be a bit um, too hopeful. But there is the opportunity there perhaps to have coherent conversations around things in which there is a win-win-win um, f- you know, for, for business, for, for employ- employees, and also ultimately perhaps for the, for the government and the government's bottom line, et cetera. So if some of that emerges from this, that's a good thing, and that should be marked up as a tick for Scott Morrison if it comes to pass. Um, but we're early days. We're not going to know. The accord was years in the making uh, ultimately. And, and particularly its achievements down through compulsory superannuation and so on. You know, they were years after that, you know, that, that relationship was essentially being forged. Uh, so we'll see where, where that goes, but he may as well do it as not do it. Yes. Thanks very much for joining us on Democracy Sausage, Hugh. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Frank Bongiorno. Thanks so much, Mark. And once again, thank you to Maria Taflaga. My pleasure. 
Always good to have you all on Democracy Sausage. That's all we've got time for this week. We've actually run pretty long, as you will be, you, as a listener, you will be aware, but I think you'll agree that it's just been such a, a rich and nourishing conversation. I've immensely enjoyed it. Look forward to talking to you again on the next issue of Democracy Sausage. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.